about the incarnation, and uh, we were in John chapter 1 and in Isaiah um, last week, talking about the prophecy, unto us a child is born, unto us uh, a son is given. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We said that the beginning of the incarnation was in the beginning. And this is what John says, in the beginning was the Word. And John is informing us that there, in the beginning, when we went from an eternal state with no beginning and no end and no sense of measuring time when God created the material world and created a beginning, Christ was there. And that beginning was for the purpose of bringing Christ into this world. And we're going to look at this today from the Gospel of Matthew, from Matthew's point of view. Let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 1 in verse 18. I'm going to read down uh, a good ways. Uh, actually, I'm going to read from verse 18 of chapter 1, and we're going to read to the end of chapter 2. Matthew 8, uh, 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the, word, by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and took to him his wife, and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he went and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully 
for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not depart, that they should not return to Herod, they departed from their own country another way. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus had, was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. I want to draw your attention to verses 21 and 23. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. If you noticed in one of the songs that we sang today, it said, Begotten, not created. And there is a difference. Jesus Christ was begotten of the Father. He was not created. Jesus Christ is not a created being. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. He is the eternal Son of God, begotten by the Father. If you think about it, we're reading um, a, a, an old... Um, what, what's that we're called? Um... um What's his name? Athanasius on the Incarnation. It was written in the 4th uh, century. 
in Athanasius uh, writes in this really kind of a brief summary if you want to think about the depth that you could write about in terms of the incarnation. He talks about in this piece that he wrote how Jesus was in the womb of Mary forming himself. (laughs) It's kind of a mind-blowing thought. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John writes that there is nothing that is that did not come from Jesus. Jesus taking on a material body, Jesus taking on flesh, and walking on planet Earth, the very planet that he created. He was himself in the womb of Mary, forming himself into a body so that he could become flesh and dwell among us and so that we could behold his glory. And this is exactly what the prophets foretold. The virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus will save his people from their sins. The incarnation has happened Jesus has come. We are waiting for the second coming of Jesus, but I want to encourage you to not get so caught up in the second coming of Jesus that you forget and overlook and take for granted the fact that Jesus has come. If Jesus had not come, there would be no second coming. There can only be a second coming because there was a first coming. Jesus has come. The incarnation has happened. So what does this really mean for us? What does this demand of us? This is the question I want to ask you today. These are the things that I want us to to ponder today. And in answer to that question, we're going to look at those who first had to deal with the coming of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2, we see primarily two groups of people. We see the wise men and we see Herod and those people of Jerusalem. And so let's look at how each of those dealt with the incarnation, with the coming of Jesus and how they dealt with it and how they reacted to it and and what they did in response to it is very important for us today because our responses and what it demands of us is really no different than what it did of them in their day. So in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Christ has been revealed The wise men saw his star. They said, we have seen his star and we have come to worship him. Christ has been revealed. Having seen him, we are to come to him. They didn't just see a star and say, oh, look, there's a new star in the sky. I wonder what that is. There was an expectation when they saw the star There was something that informed them that this is not just a star. This is not just a a cool 
cosmic event. There was something that informed them that this spoke of the coming of a king. Now, true, there were Old Testament prophecies that talked about a scepter rising up. And there were Jews. These guys came from what, what would be known today as present-day Iraq or present-day Iran. They were remnants of the Persian and the Babylonian empires. And the Jews were exiled there for 70 years. And so the scriptures were known. Uh, whether these were Gentiles or whether these were Jews, more than likely they were Gentiles. They were Magi. These were the same guys that Daniel hung out with. These were the magicians, the court wise men in Nebuchadnezzar's court and in the court of the Persian king. But the reality is, it wasn't just that they knew of an Old Testament prophecy. It wasn't just that they had book knowledge of a coming king. Something happened inside of them. Something caused them to see And something caused them to seek after this king. And that's what I want us to talk about. You cannot see Christ until he reveals himself to you. You know, God didn't have to put that star in the sky, but he did. And God didn't have to draw attention to that star and give those wise men the knowledge they had concerning what that star meant, but he did. What I'm saying is the reason those wise men were able to see that star and the reason those wise men were able to seek after what that star represented was because God revealed himself. God gave them a revelation of himself. And until Christ makes himself known, until he reveals that he is. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those who come to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. Do you believe that he is? Very important question. And until Christ makes himself known, we will not see him, nor will we seek him. Now think about it. One day you have a thought. A thought comes to your mind. You hear something. You see something. You experience something that opens your heart or that opens your mind to the possibility or the reality of Christ. We all have a story, a testimony of how we came to faith. For some, it might have been very dramatic and seemingly all at once. For others, it might have been something that was just a part of your life. As far back as you can remember, it doesn't matter how you came to that place. What's important is that you realize that it was God who brought you to that place. It was God who revealed himself to you, who brought to you the possibility, which eventually became the reality of Christ in you, the hope of glory.
from a revelation, you begin to seek him. You desire to know him and to see him in your heart and in your mind and in your life. Not a natural knowing or a natural seeing, but something deeper. You seek a spiritual knowing and a seeing through faith from a desire born out of your heart, a desire that only God could implant within your heart. Your desire to see him and to know him comes from a seed that he has planted in your heart by the Holy Spirit. And unless we see him, we have no true and lasting hope. Do you realize that, church? Unless we come to see Jesus, we have no true and lasting hope. I don't care what you amass, how much wealth or power or influence you amass on this earth. If you never come to see Jesus, if you never come to know Jesus, there is no hope. For the hope that we have in Christ cannot be bought, it cannot be purchased. For only in knowing Christ is our eternal hope found and made known and made our own in this life and in all eternity. Our seeing must lead to us coming to Christ. They saw the star and they came to worship him. Your seeing of Christ must lead to, it must come to your worship of Christ. The point of God revealing Christ and allowing us to see is that we come to him. And then in verse 3, it says, When Herod the king, so the wise men saw and they came to worship him, it says. When Herod the king heard that these wise men had come because there was a king, it says he was troubled, but not just Herod, but it says all Jerusalem with him. Now, it's easy to understand why Herod was troubled. If you do just a a quick historical uh, investigation, sketch of Herod, you realize that Herod was not the rightful king. Herod did not descend from David. Herod was not David's descendant. Herod was not even Jewish. He was of Arab descent. He was was a... um, not even of the same lineage. He was there because the Romans put him there. And because of his relationship with Rome, Herod was put in that position and he was called the king. He was the king and he ruled as the king. He had such a good relationship with Rome that Rome pretty much let him do what he wanted. Now, centuries before, he was converted or many of the people where he came from were converted to Judaism, but it really is questionable whether Herod was really even Jewish in his practice other than to just make a show for the people because he knew that he couldn't sit and have any level of support if he did not at least go through the motions. So here is this Herod. And if you read about Herod, you see that he was an extremely insecure individual. 
as many kings are. So he did things like kill his children and kill his wives and kill his family members and kill anybody that he thought was a threat to his throne because he was so insecure with his position. So here is Herod ruling his kingdom in all of his insecurity. And here come these wise men from the east who said, hey, we've seen a star, the star of the new king. Can you tell us where he is? <laughs> what do you think Herod thought when he found out there's another king? Who's this king? And that's exactly what he said. Who is this king? Hey, you guys go and find him and come back and tell me about him. Tell me where he is so I can go and worship him too. Yeah, right. So it's easy to understand why Herod was troubled because this was a direct threat to his throne. But it doesn't just say Herod was troubled. It says that all Jerusalem also. Now, why would Jerusalem be troubled? Why was all Jerusalem troubled at the revelation of this king? And the answer to that question should cause us to question our own attitude toward Jesus. Jerusalem had come to a place of relative calm and comfort. Yes, she was under Roman rule. But relatively speaking... Everything was managed and kind of controlled. There wasn't the threat of war. The world lived under the Pax Romana. You know what that means? The Roman peace. You know how Rome brought peace to the world? Because they ruled the world with an iron fist. But they brought peace with that. And so there was now safety and security there was a measure of safety and security in the world that had never existed before. And Jerusalem was allowed to worship. They had the temple. They had their sacrifices. They had their system of worship. And as long as they didn't cause any trouble, as long as they kept things the way they were supposed to be and kept Rome happy, then the Romans just let them have their gods and worship and do what they wanted to do, and they were content with that. But now the revelation of this new king caused them to be troubled because they knew who Herod was, and they knew that Herod was not going to allow another king to come. And besides that, if there's another king, how do we know this king's not going to, to challenge Caesar? And then that's going to bring trouble with the Romans. And so Jerusalem was troubled. Because Jerusalem had come to this place of comfort. They were content with what had become an accepted norm. What had become normal to them is what they had become content with. They had become content with a way of life. And the thought of changing things conjured up too many uncomfortable thoughts and images they were troubled because a new king meant a new way and it also meant a struggle that would rock the boat and disrupt what they had come to falsely, listen, what they had come to falsely perceive to be peace. Have you ever been in a place like that? Life is just, it's, everything is okay. Don't cause trouble. Don't rock 
the boat. Just leave things the way they are. That's where Jerusalem was. And they thought they had peace because they had a measure of security or because there wasn't anyone at the outside of their walls knocking to get in to kill them. Yeah, the Romans were there and they were pretty cruel and they were pretty demanding, but at least they let us live our lives and they leave us alone. And, and, and we haven't had that in a long time. Just let's be content. You know, it's easy for us to come to a place like that in our lives. Just to become content. Everything's all right. Don't rock the boat. But I'm going to tell you what. Jesus is in the business of rocking our boats. Jesus is in the business of bringing trouble. Because trouble causes us to rise up out of our comfort zone. Trouble causes us to have to choose to make a decision. Trouble causes us to look at things in ways that we would not look at them otherwise. Trouble causes us to consider things we would not otherwise consider. Trouble causes us to consider possibilities that we might not consider otherwise. Trouble opens our eyes to things and shows us things that we would otherwise be blind to, that we would just as soon bury our head in the sand and pretend like does not exist. Do you think Jesus didn't know that when he came? Do you think that when the incarnation happened, that when that baby was born, do you think God did not know that it was going to bring trouble? Oh, he knew it was going to bring trouble. And this is why Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus knew exactly what would happen when he came. And this is exactly what he wanted to have happen. He did not want Jerusalem content and comfortable with where she was because that's not who she was supposed to be. That's not who she was made for. That's not who she was created for. That's not who she spoke of. She is the bride of Christ. She's not the bride of Rome. She's not the bride of Herod. She is the bride of Christ. And she had to come to a place. And we have to come to a place to understand who we are. You are the new Jerusalem if you are the church. That's not what I say. That's what the Bible says. And that means you are the bride of Christ. That means you were created for him. That means that you must reflect his glory. And that might be troubling if we've become comfortable with a life and a lifestyle, a belief and a belief system that is not about him, but is more about us. That is not about his glory, but is more about our safety and our own peace and our own security. The troubling that Christ brings may come in small or it may come in great ways. For Herod and for all Jerusalem and for us all, the trouble that Christ brings is for good and ultimately for life. The love of Christ is such that he is willing to trouble us, to shake us out of our false security, out of our false peace and our false life. Are you listening to me? 
When we are troubled because of Christ, it reveals something in us that needs to be touched by the transforming power of Christ. We often gravitate to beliefs and theologies that give us the illusion of security and peace rooted in a trouble-free life. You can just go to the bookstore today and look in the Christian living section at the best-selling titles. And this is what most of them are about. Your safety, your security, your success, your happiness. And I'm not saying God doesn't want that. What I'm saying is we need to understand Jerusalem thought that's what they had before Jesus came. But the reality is they did not. And when Jesus did come, they were troubled and got so up in arms that they ended up crucifying the Lord of glory because they did not want him to trouble them any longer. And they did not want him to challenge them any longer to think of life differently, to look at life differently. They wanted to stay in their safe place, in their beliefs, in their theologies that was more about them and not about him. We cherry pick our way through the scripture or we twist the scripture to make it say what we want it to say in order to justify our comfortable illusions, deceiving ourselves and others. Or we altogether ignore what the scripture teaches and we do what is right in our own eyes. And when we fall into such heresy, know that we will be troubled by Christ and by the truth that is meant to set us free. You know why we will be troubled? Because God loves us that much. Because God loves us enough to trouble us. You know, if God would have been so concerned about the trouble that would, have co- that would come because of Christ, he could have said, you know, it's just not worth the trouble. Jesus, just stay up here in heaven. We'll just stay here. We'll leave them to themselves. They're doing pretty good right now. But no, that's not what God did. God said, you know what? It's worth the trouble. Because unless I trouble them, they will never know the truth. And unless they know the truth, they will never be set free. So what would you rather be? Set free? With a freedom that came because God loved you enough to trouble you? And make you think and look and see and hear differently than you might have otherwise? Or would you rather just remain as you are and be content? I think you know the answer to that question. When we embrace the truth, it is that truth that sets us free. And in that sense, we should never avoid trouble, but embrace the trouble that God allows and let it teach us and transform us into what he has destined us to be, or I should say, into who he has destined us to be. So when Herod in Jerusalem heard of this king, it says they were troubled. 
It says, then the wise man says, when they saw, look at verse 10. <clears throat> so they leave Herod to go and search and they see the star again. It says, when they saw the star, verse 10, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they saw, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. This is not simple rejoicing. This is not simple joy. It's hard to accurately express in English what's being communicated here. With exceedingly great joy. In other words, I can't put into human terms the joy that they experienced because they saw the star and because they knew they would see the king. It's not your typical happy moment or emotional high. With exceeding great joy describes a kind of rejoicing that surpasses what might be considered typical. Christ not only gives us reason to rejoice, he gives us reason to rejoice with exceedingly great joy. Have you found that? Have you experienced that? I'll be honest with you. It's very easy for me to allow the circumstances of life and the circumstances of the moment to rob me of the exceedingly great joy that God has given to me in Christ. It's very easy for life to make me blind and make me deaf to the very thing that should give to me Always and in all things, exceedingly great joy. And I think that's very normal for human beings. But what's not normal for believers is that we stay in that place of blindness or deafness. You may be distracted for a moment. But your gaze and your attention and your mind should go back to the thing that has given to you the reason to have exceedingly great joy. And that thing, that person who is Christ, that reality which is Christ in you, Christ with us, that reality trumps every other thing in our life. Everything. It trumps every situation. It trumps every circumstance because whatever situation and circumstance you might happen to be walking through right now or living in right now is temporary, but He is eternal. And what He has given to us in Christ is eternal. So our joy as believers should be exceedingly great. It should be. It's what God meant it to be. So it's so easy. It's too easy to see and to dwell on all the reasons we have to not rejoice. But it's a gift of grace that enables us to rejoice with exceedingly great joy. It is a gift of grace that opens our eyes and our ears to the sights and the sounds of the joyful declaration. This is what the angel said. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill 
toward men. I mean real peace. Not false peace, not pseudo peace, not political peace, not just emotional peace, but I mean real peace, that we are no longer at war with God, that we are no longer the hostile enemy separated from God, but God has now made a way for us to be reconciled to him. We have peace with God. There is good will extended to us from God. Can you hear that? Can you see that? It's easy to focus on all around us those things that are not peaceful, are not joyful, are not glorious. As believers, we're given the ability to look beyond the less than peaceful or the less than joyful and the less than glorious things of the world around us and see Christ at work in all of His peace, in all of His joy, and in all of His glory. As believers, as those who have been joined to Christ in this life, in His life, and in His resurrection, and in His victory over all things, we have reason to rejoice, and to rejoice with exceedingly great joy. Pray, God, open your eyes to see the exceeding greatness of his victory over sin and death. And so see the exceeding greatness of your joy and your rejoicing in him. The wise men declared, we have come to worship him. And they did. Look at verse 11. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. When the wise men saw the young child, when they saw Christ, they fell down and they worshipped him. It didn't matter that it was a young child. They did not simply see a child. They saw the Christ. It's the same thing Anna and Simeon saw when Jesus, only a baby, newborn infant, was carried into the temple 40 days after the, his birth. When, when they carried Jesus in there, when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus into the temple, wrapped up this little baby, and the, the prophetess Anna, and, and the old man Simeon, the prophet Simeon, they saw the baby. They didn't just see a baby. They saw the Christ. They saw the salvation of God. And that's what they said. Simeon said, I can go. I can depart in peace now, for I have seen, my eyes have seen the salvation of God. These wise men weren't just coming to gaze upon a, a beautiful little child. They didn't see a child. They saw the salvation of God. They saw the king of glory. They saw the king that was prophesied to rise up. They saw the one whose government and peace would have no end. That's who they saw. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. What you see when you see Jesus will determine your worship. 
If Jesus is nothing more than someone to provide success and happiness wrapped up in warm, fuzzy emotions, then your worship will be conditional and subject to how you think Jesus is doing in giving you what you think you need. Do you understand what I'm saying? If Jesus is the object of your worship because of what you think you can get from Jesus, then when your life isn't going the way you think it should, when you think you've been giving Jesus all his due, but he hasn't been given back to you, then you start to question, well, what's the point of worshiping this guy? What's the point? I, I give and I give and I try and I try, and it seems like the harder I try. I actually had someone say this to me recently. You know, I deal with a lot of people who, um, who have fallen on hard times. And this wasn't anyone in our church. It was just someone I, I, I encountered through uh, just, just working with people who, because I do a lot of work uh, with and on behalf of Shepherd's Heart. And this person was in a really rough place in their life. And they, they said this exactly to me. They said, I've tried and tried and tried, and I've, I've, I've given and I feel like I've done everything right, but it seems like the harder I try, God just doesn't, I'm, I'm not getting the help I need. I'm still having a hard time. Things aren't breaking good for me. They're breaking bad for me. And, and what I heard in the cry of this person was, can you give me a good reason to keep trying, Jesus? Can you give me a good reason to keep worshiping? And I mean, that right there is a red flag. And, and that person could not even see that. Well, how, how are you trying to do this? You know, this is my question. How are you trying to do this? Listen, coming to church isn't a magic bullet. But don't come to me and tell me you're trying with all that you have to uh, worship God and to do everything. I love what Frankie said, man. I mean, when, when God touched Frankie's life, you, you couldn't have barred Frankie from the doors. I mean, Frankie just, he just jumped in with both feet because he knew that his only hope was God. Do you know that your only hope is God? Do you see what these wise men did? They fell down at the feet of Jesus and they worshiped. These guys were important people. They come to poor Bethlehem, to a poor house, to a poor mother with a poor baby. And these guys that come from royalty in robes of riches, they fall down at the feet of this poor baby and they worship him because they understand who he is. What about our worship? Who is this Jesus? Is he just someone that we give a token we just toss a token worship to him every so often. I want to keep him in my back pocket, you know? I want to stay in his good graces. 
Is that who he is? Or do you see him for who he truly is? He is the Lord of glory. He is the creator of heaven and earth. He did not have to come. He did not have to incarnate. He did not have to take on flesh. He did not have to die on the cross. He did not have to save us. But he did. He deserves all worship because he is Jesus, period. There is nothing else we can add to that. It doesn't matter what he does for you or what you think he doesn't do for you. If I die a pauper, homeless, on the streets of Austin, that does not matter. Now, I don't want to die that way. I'll just tell you right now. I live 48 hours on the streets with those guys. I I don't want to die that way. But here's what I'm saying. It doesn't matter what condition we're in when we pass from this life. The question is, what is the condition of your heart? Have you seen him? Do you know him? Do you worship him because of who he is? Period. Not because of what he does for you. Not because of what you want him to do for you. Do you worship him because of who he is? This is how the wise men worshiped him. And worship is primary. For it is the ultimate expression of seeing, of knowing, of coming, of trusting, and rejoicing. Jesus is the object of our worship and there is, there is to be no other. In worshiping Christ, we worship the Father, we worship the Son, we worship the Spirit, for in Christ is the fullness of the Godhead. If we do not worship Christ, we have no part in Him. Worship is not simply what we say we do. Worship is not some ambiguous expression or stealth relationship, but an open, resounding show of sheer devotion and love poured back to the one who first poured it into our own hearts. The worship you give to God is the love that he has poured into your heart and enabled you to give back to him. Because you had no love to give to him until he put it in your heart first. 1 John 4, 19, Romans chapter 5. This is the hope we have, that God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that hope does not disappoint. Worship must define who we are. Worship of Christ cannot be half-hearted. It is not deceptive or disguised, and it is not carnal. The Father is seeking such to worship Him. Those who will worship in spirit and in truth. That's John chapter 4 in Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. And the Father is seeking, and Christ deserves true worship. So let us worship Him. And these wise men came, and when they fell down and worshipped him, the Bible says they presented gifts to him. Worship requires giving, and giving requires sacrifice, or it is not true worship. In the Old Covenant, worship was not worship without the offering of a sacrifice. I don't care if it was a 
sheave of grain or whether it was a bull. When you came to worship God, you did not come empty-handed. And I'm not saying that in talking about your finances, though your finances are a very important aspect of your worship. But sometimes the easiest thing to do is to write a check to Jesus. It requires no heart at all. It just requires a checkbook and a pen and some money in the bank. But I promise you, Jesus wants more than a check. He wants more than the money that's in your bank. He wants your heart is what he wants. And if he has your heart, then he'll have everything else. That will never be an issue. Worship means the presentation of something. But the mere presentation of a gift does not equal true worship. God cannot be bought. He can't be bribed. He's not manipulated. This is why the presentation of our gift must be accompanied with the presentation of our heart. It is the giving of our self. Worship is from the heart. And our presentation to God must start with our heart. God is. It is God, listen, it is God who gave you a new heart. When you give your heart to God, you're just giving back to Him what He's already given to you. You're just presenting back to Him the very thing, the very thing that He has given to you by His grace. And it is the presentation of this new heart back to God that we continuously offer Him in worship. Worship is not worship if there is no presentation of our gift. If we are not willing to offer our hearts to God in worship, then no other thing can we present to Him. And there is no other thing that we can present to Him that matters if we are not willing to offer our heart to Him. When God has our heart, then we will have no problem giving Him all we have in all that we are. When God has our heart, God has our worship. The angel said to Joseph, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Christ has come. Emmanuel, has come. God is with us. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice it does not say he will save all people from their sins. He will save his people. That means becoming his people is a life and death issue. That's why we don't believe in universal salvation. It says he came to save his people. How do you become his? And how do you know that you are part of the people of God? Very simply, if you put your trust in Jesus as the only way of salvation and call upon his name, the scripture teaches that you will be saved. You might ask, but how do I know if I really trust and if I am really saved? People ask me this question quite frequently. But how do I know, Pastor Jeff, whether I... I'm really trusting. How do I know if I'm really saved? And here's what I tell them. Really trust. Just really trust Him. Really call upon His name. And really believe what the Scripture declares about your salvation. Out of your faith, 
and reliance in Jesus continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And if you do that, you will grow in the assurance of your salvation. Jesus said, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Trust him from your heart. Confess him from your heart. Let your mouth begin to communicate the reality of a new heart that God has given you in Jesus Christ and grow in the assurance of your salvation. Out of your trust in Christ, you continue to see him and seek him and know him. You will experience his grace daily and especially when he leads you into troubled waters or through the storms in the valleys of life. Your faith in Christ should be the spring of exceeding great joy that flows from a heart of worship that is ever presenting itself to God. God with us, God in us, God for us. This is Jesus. This is God saving us. This is the incarnation. He has come. Merry Christmas. Let's all stand. That is what Merry Christmas is about. That is why we should celebrate in every form, in every fashion, and make it as joyful and as glorious as we possibly can. Because that is who the object of our worship is. I challenge you to see him and to seek him even in the midst of trouble to know and express your exceeding great joy and to present to him all your heart so that there is nothing left but to fall down and worship him and be consumed by his glory. Let us pray. Lord, we see. Lord, we see as you give us eyes to see. We hear as you give us eyes to see. And Lord, you see us and you know us better than we ourselves. Change us, we ask. Make us true worshipers, worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Strip away the falsehood, strip away the facade. Trouble us if need be, but bring us to our knees that we may fall down and worship and come to know that there is no other worthy, that there is no other hope but Christ. We thank you that you have come, and that you are coming again. Give us the grace to make ourselves ready for that glorious day. In Jesus' name, amen.